Welcome to IRI's second podlet. I'm your host, Travis Green. This episode, we will focus on the complicated situation that's currently unfolding in Venezuela. Back in Global's first season, we did a full episode on Venezuela. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it to give you some background on the factors that pushed Venezuela into the circumstances that we see today. Just a quick recap on the situation. Over the past months, we've seen dictator Nicolas Maduro and his supporters in the military pitted against the democratically elected National Assembly and tens of thousands of protesters who are fed up with the Maduro regime. How did these protests start? On January 10th, Nicolas Maduro was inaugurated for his second term after stealing victory in rigged presidential elections in May of 2018. Then, on January 23rd of this year, then-head of the National Assembly, Juan Guaido, assumed the interim presidency based on the constitutional argument that the head of the National Assembly takes the role of interim president in the event that there is a presidential vacuum. Guaido made the argument that the May 2018 election of Maduro was illegitimate, and thus no president had actually been elected. With the backing of the democratically elected National Assembly, Guaido was sworn in as interim president and was swiftly recognized by a series of countries including most of Latin America, the United States, and several EU member states. Over the weeks that have followed, we've continued to see a divided government and mass protests met with violent repression by parts of the government that are still loyal to Maduro. But what's happening to the everyday people at the heart of these larger political battles? What are the next steps interim president Guaido and the National Assembly need to take? And what role should Venezuela's neighbors and the broader international community take? Joining me to discuss these questions is Carla Angola. Carla is an experienced Venezuelan journalist working with Miami-based EVTV, a news platform focused on Venezuela and Venezuelans outside of the country, and formerly with Globovision, one of the final independent broadcasting stations to be taken over by the government within Venezuela. Carla, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, so just to kind of get us started, over the last mm-hmm. couple of years, it's been a very evolving situation from the protests that have happened in 2014, 2017, and in 2018. Repression has changed a lot inside the country. First off, can you tell us a little bit about like what repression is there, if, if there is any, and who is being targeted by that repression this time? That's a great question. After Juan Guaido called massive protests, after he assumed the interim presidency in Venezuela, the GNB, which is the, the Spanish initials for the Bolivarian National Guard, who are the main body of repression of protesters on the streets, stood down and let the protesters pass freely without cornering them or shooting at them. In former protests, these GNB would use tear gas to prevent the protesters even from gathering. If we talk about the colectivos, they're originally set up as neighborhood watch groups based on the Cuban model, and they were also provided with weapons and used these as a proxy of repression to submit common civilians. But the truth is that they have a complex relationship with the regime, and yes, they sometimes do what the regime wants, but they are also involved in their own gang activity. Um, This is a part of the Cuban and Venezuelan regime master plan, which is to put criminals on the streets to subdue the population and make them fear to even walking on the streets. Nobody in Venezuela wants to go out late to prevent being victims of kidnapping, robbery, or murder. And when you, and when you are trying to survive and your life is on the line, you can keep an eye on who stays power. Venezuelans have been suffering for so long, and they are right now trying to ease their hunger and pain. And for someone who is just trying to stay alive, the word democracy or freedom become irrelevant. I just want to say to add, 
in the protest of 2014 and 2017 when you saw those videos where it looks like a bunch of guys in a motorcycle randomly shooting someone. That's an example of the colectivos, but those are not random shootings. The situation is severe because the colectivos started reporting alleged traitors. Traitor meaning anyone who does not agree with Chavez or Maduro's oppression to the dictatorship. Venezuela is a society under a constant uh, surveillance. Just kind of repeat back to make sure I'm hearing what you're saying. This time around, there is less widespread repression by the police force, more repression from the side of the colectivos or the criminal gangs. But the real human rights situation is actually tied up in the fact that people don't have food or access to medicine. Yes, you're right. Kind of looking across the country, most of the news media that comes out of Venezuela is centered on Caracas and the different uh, challenges that Caracas is facing. How does the situation, both human rights and humanitarian, look differently when we're looking at different cities or different regions that are beyond Caracas that don't maybe don't have as much access to, to some of the small amounts of food and medicine that are getting in? A lot of the problems that the world is seeing today, such as hunger, electrical, blackouts, lack of medicine and food and repression, had really been going on around the country. And it did not make worldwide headlines until the situation got worse in Caracas, the capital. Some Venezuelans, I have to say, including me as a journalist who were living in the capital, felt sort of guilty of not understanding the severity of their situation when they started telling us how desperate they were and there was nothing we could do about it. Looking, shifting a little bit to look at media censorship, you talked a little bit just now about uh, your past history as a journalist within Venezuela. One thing that's always Mm -hmm. a precondition to mass repression is media censorship. A lot of times across the world, these go hand in hand. Under Hugo Chavez, Venezuela really began to experience a lot of this media censorship, including intimidating reporters, filtering text messages, and government takeover of most of the broadcasting sector. Could you explain briefly what the average citizen in Venezuela has access to in terms of media consumption? The repression is not not only physical, but moral and mental as well. They have been able to control your will to speak up. It has gotten to a point where it's become a sort of self-censorship. The dictatorship doesn't have the need to remind you that there will be consequences. In addition, Internet in Venezuela is very slow. In fact, they have locked the signal every time the interim president, Guaido, calls for a massive disapproval towards the regime. There is not any independent media left. So the only media that really reaches the people with the truth and actual facts is alternative social media platforms. Other ways the information is being spread is through WhatsApp groups. And all this impediment of freedom of speech is the main reason why I'm here in the United States because I had to flee from my country after being persecuted while I was trying to report what was happening to my fellow citizens. This, as you know, is the way that narco-traffickers operate. They attempt to silence you, and if you don't do it, they go after your loved ones. I worked for 18 years in Globovision, which was one of the few independent media in Venezuela at that time. They started uh, sending these colectivos, 
to our TV station, launching Molotov cocktails to our cars at the parking lot. But they got smart. And instead of fighting the media, they bought it and took ownership of the right of freedom of expression to Venezuelans. And for me personally, that meant that I had to resign. What sort of effect does that type of censorship when journalists like yourself and like your your family are being attacked and are being pressured, what impact does that have on Venezuelans? Well, after Venezuelans, the regime took over the major media. They started harassing regular people for just tweeting any sort of criticism. The most well-known of such assaults is the imprisonment of leaders of the major political parties who allowed it. And several of them are holding asylum status and are now here forming part of the Guaido government. Ironically, the same people Maduro has persecuted and expelled from Venezuela are the ones who had the opportunity to build this narrative that has allowed the international community to understand the severity of Venezuelan crisis. Remember that it's no easy to put up a fight being within the country. Maduro's dictatorship also deploys Soviet-style tactics. When the Venezuelan councilman Fernando Alban came to the UN to denounce human rights abuses at the General Assembly, when he went back to Caracas, he was taken by the security forces at the airport, tortured for three days, and tossed out of a tent story window, declaring that he had committed suicide. This is why it is crucial for our Venezuelan leaders to have the opportunity to work from here. And for us, too, as a journalist. That makes a lot of sense. You've talked a little bit, started talking a little bit about some of the political leaders and the political leadership of the National Assembly. One of the interesting things for me looking at Venezuela is the multiple parallel institutions inside of Venezuela. There's, you know, a Supreme Court in exile and there's a Supreme Court appointed by Maduro in the country. There's the illegitimate National Constituent Assembly in Venezuela and then there's the Democratic National Assembly within Venezuela as well. And now there are two people making claims at the presidency, Maduro based on illegitimate elections and Guaido constitutionally um, as the interim president. What sort of impact do you think new elections, if successfully called by interim president Guaido, what sort of impact would these new elections have on how the average Venezuela views government institutions? It does look, I, I understand, it does look from the outside that we have two of everything, talking, of course, about our institutions. But even though this is a, a brutal dictatorship, it still seeks to clog itself in legitimacy by mimicking the processes of a constitutional democracy without actually following them. To give you an example, the National Constitutional Assembly, it was supposedly established to draft a new constitution, but it's simply there to rule in favor of the regime, and was created to take the legitimate National Assembly, truly elected by Venezuelan people, out of the way. Imagine this ridiculous situation on which the President of the United States lost two-thirds of the Congress, but he decided that he didn't like it. So he would just establish an all-new Congress with all his supporters, and then when people went out into the streets to protest it, he would just send out armed gangs and the security forces to murder citizens. That is what has happened in Venezuela. Hearing you loud and clear, yeah, I think um, 
while there might be confusion at the outset, once you start to look a little bit more in detail at the roles that these bodies are playing, it is very clear which one is on the side of the Venezuelan democratic movement. Um, I wanted to ask you also about the role of the military. Many people looking at this mm-hmm. see the military as the key to Maduro hanging on to support. Uh, this is something that we see in dictatorships across the world. So looking at Venezuela now, how do you see the role of the military moving forward in relation to loyalty to Maduro or being able to support Guaido's democratic efforts? Well, the first step is for them to come in line with the Constitution and to support their constitutional leader, which is Juan Guaido. They need to come to the side of the people, the ones that they're supposed to defend. For them to regain their legitimacy, they need to be depoliticized and simple to serve the Constitution, not a man, not a political party. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio has identified the six military leaders who really hold the key for the military support for Juan Guaido. The rest of the militaries are really looking to those six men to see whether they speak first. If so, they will follow them. We are confronting on this February 23rd, which is when they will be joined caravans, people demanding food coming to the border regions. The question for the military will be whether or not they will follow order to shoot on the poor, hungry, and desperate masses among to move some of their own family members, because many of them are suffering from the same crisis than the rest of the country. That's a really interesting perspective, especially because there is so much history. But I think it's very important as well that that moment of whether it's amnesty or simply forgiveness tries to move a country forward. And... Looking, looking at that a little bit, you, you just referenced the military blocking the entry of much of that humanitarian aid. What needs to happen for the military to allow that humanitarian aid in? You just referenced that a lot of these soldiers are, you know, they're suffering themselves. They are hungry as well. What, what other steps can, can be taken so that the military feels that they are able to let this, this food and the medicine in? Right now, the spotlight is on the, as you, as you said, on the military sector. What will they do? Will they continue being faithful to Maduro, or will they be in favor of Venezuelan people? And this is the the big question. We really don't know what was happening. So we we started talking a little bit around the edges of the international reactions for support Mm -hmm. of Guaido. You mentioned the incredible work that much of the opposition leaders have done internationally to the point to where over 50 countries, several of the large multilateral institutions now recognized Juan Guaido as the interim president, and they'd made that move very quickly. What does it mean Mm -hmm. for the democratic movement within Venezuela that so many countries around the world support Guaido over Maduro? The support these 51 countries have shown for Juan Guaido is in absolutely critical, not only uh, empowering his front line with these new Venezuelan ambassadors, it has also provided great pressure for the military and others to consider that the international support for Juan Guaido limits their options and ask them uh, the question, why it is that the only people who support them are criminal, repressive States. Guaido received the support because he has followed the Venezuelan constitution, which is drafted in 1999 when, when Chavez was president. It shows that the opposition is actually more in support of the rule of law of the constitution than the people who drafted it. 
Uh, that reveals that the regime is a transnational criminal organization, that this is not about rules, that this is not about law for them. The international community validated the protest movement and the people who want to see democracy, who want to see the rule of law and the rights restored under their constitution. Carla, thank you so very much for your insights into Venezuela and the incredibly complex situation that we're seeing there. This has been great. Thank you for having me. It was an honor for me. For those of you listening who would like to learn more, check out IRI's blog at democracyspeaks.org for analysis and information about the region and IRI's work around the globe. If you like the show, please leave us a rating or drop us a comment at podcast at IRI.org. Until next time, I'm Travis Green, and thank you for listening to Global.